Season 2 of Lightwork Presents Everything is Connected, where we share inspiring stories with artists and art professionals on a wide range of topics, including race, work ethics, inspiration, and the ways in which art influences and is affected by culture. Join us as we continue the journey of sharing the interesting and inspiring stories of some of today's hottest artists and art professionals in the industry. Let's go! On this episode, we're joined by Nico Whedon. She is an independent art advisor, curator, educator, and writer who adopts an interdisciplinary approach as her strategy for building as her strategy for building a more responsive cultural ecosystem. An advocate for BIPOC and women artists in all endeavors, she uses her myriad of platforms to expand the canon of contemporary art while cultivating a community of professional practice and collective care. Through her consultancy, Nico Whedon Projects, she delivers cultural strategy and curatorial guidance to artists, cultural institutions, entrepreneurs, foundations, and government agencies. Nico is an adjunct professor at Barnard College, Brown University, and Hartford Art School, teaching at the intersections of art history, creative and cultural entrepreneurship, and museum studies. On this episode, we focus on fulfillment, passion, and intentionality, Black entrepreneurship, diversity, and equity. And finally, her thoughts on the future, the past, and the present. I'd like to talk a little bit about fulfillment, passion, and intentionality in your work. What do you like most about your job and the work that you do? (laughs) That's a tough question for me, mostly because I do a lot of different things. And I think the older I get, the more comfortable I am with that. The more comfortable I am with the fact that not everything I do brings me the same joy and the same fulfillment collectively as a practice, it's exactly where I want to be. The crux of that is my love for people. I am a people person through and through. So I love working directly with artists and with communities. And I get to do that, you know, through my curating and through my programming. Oftentimes my function is really, and I say function not as kind of a service, but more as where I know that I add value is in serving as a bridge between artists and communities. I would say as an educator, I I love working with young people. I still describe myself as a young person, even though I'm almost 37. So that includes the high schoolers that I work with through kind of museum education, right up to emerging artists in the MFA program uh, that I teach at Hartford Art School. Young learners excite me and I learn a lot from their questions and from the things they choose to resist in terms of practices. All of that brings me fulfillment. I think the last piece is that I'm a builder. I love getting my hands dirty. I love taking an idea from its messiest stage and building it into a project. And so I think recognizing creativity is the tool that allows for that to happen. And so I find joy in all of that. What do you believe led you to a career in the arts? I'm an Aquarius. And people always, when I tell them what I do and what I'm interested in, and then I tell them that I'm an Aquarius, they're always like, oh, that makes perfect sense. 
<laughs> I'm like, okay, I don't know what that means. The more I research and the more I look into it, I realize that by nature, I am an innovator and I'm an eccentric and a creative and a free spirit. And that's a quality that I've possessed since before I can remember. All of that leads me to creativity and to artists. I'm also the daughter of a photographer and of an engineer. And I think of both of those as creative practices that I was exposed to really early on in my life. As a young person, I moved around a lot. So I've lived in like five countries and here within the States, I've lived in seven different states. I've had a unique opportunity to engage in different but connected cultures and to really learn from those. And I think in each instance, I definitely landed in creative communities and artistic communities. All of that steers me down a path that is interested in aesthetics, interested in culture, interested in how those things come together uh, to really shape the environment that we find ourselves in and then how those environments become part of a broader ecosystem. So I think that in addition to, you know, encountering some really awesome mentors pretty early on in my life definitely led me to turn that interest in art and creativity into a career. I love that. And I feel like I want to tap a little bit deeper into you speaking about places that you'd lived as a young girl growing up, um, mm -hmm. living in different countries. I think that that really changes one's perspective about the world. You just get to see so many things, your level of exposure. It just changes you. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Yeah, I, I was born in Redwood City, California, and very promptly, my family moved to Paris, France, where I lived until I was about five years old. We weren't French. We were Americans living in France. I went to the American School of Paris, where I left with a British accent because all my teachers were English. Part of it was actually the culture shock of returning to America to a completely different cultural context where I wasn't so much an other, but where I kind of carried with me all of these early exposures to, to kind of Parisian life. And so I think that in and of itself kind of instilled an adventurous quality in me. So every time I had the chance, you know, mostly through school, I went to university and did study abroad. Yeah, I chose to study somewhere that was not my home, my hometown or my home country. And I think that choice really comes from that kind of early exposure to people doing things differently, valuing objects and people and communities differently. I think it's not to be underestimated. I realize mine is a privileged experience and a privileged upbringing. But, you know, when I think about all of the people that <laughs> find ways to travel, you know, to different universes um, by tapping into resources like libraries and, and archives, you know, it's really compelling stuff. And so I think, yeah, if I were a parent of a young person, I would encourage them to put down a phone and go explore a world that could be found in these amazing troves of cultural treasures that exist all around us. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. How do you stay motivated in your work? Yeah. So motivation is like not my problem because <laughs> I'm, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm like, I'm an overachiever. I have nice. a super compulsive work ethic. And this is like not me bragging. This is, I, I see these as faults. So yeah, I think my challenge is actually in kind of affecting and maintaining a work-life balance. In general, conversation fuels and motivates me. I was talking to someone about this the other day. I'm a child of the 80s, and so I love talking on the phone. <laughs> it's like one of my favorite yeah. things to do. Me yeah, too. You know? It's like sit in the hallway with the phone and the cord, you know, and just 
talk for hours. Exactly. And so I really value that. Zoom is not it. You know, it's like, that's no, like, <laughs> like what is Zoom? I'm sorry, but what is Zoom? No, it's I'm too using much. the telephone. It's too much, but I could talk on the phone for hours. And most of my <laughs> best friends have something similar about them where that isn't like a, a thing that puts them off about me. We find motivation in those conversations and we're constantly learning from each other and how we respond to each other. So if there is something in your work that sort of requires a little bit of extra input or effort and it's not motivation because you're highly self-motivated, what is that thing for you? I think it's just those conversations. Part of how I arrived at at building a company with my life partner, uh, now business partner, is that that's all we do. Like (laughs) we don't have a down moment in our home. You know, we're sitting at the kitchen table talking about what we want to build. And I draw energy and motivation from those conversations. And I should say he, he is a chemist by training, but like a super analytical scientific thinker, which is like the opposite of me. And so part of it is not just conversations, but it's conversations with people who bring something different to the table. I think really kind of getting into these spaces that are interdisciplinary or that allow people to kind of push outside what they think they know is the most exciting thing to me. How would you say that in your work and in the way you approach your work, do you bring a sense of intentionality to what you do? I think part of it is I'm a listener. So I start by listening and I'm a learner, right? I listen a lot and then I learn from what I hear and I process all that before I set about actually doing anything. But I would say that when I start really to get down to the work, regardless of what it is, because, you know, I curate, I write, I teach, I, I do all sorts of things. In all instances, I start from a place of values, which I think oftentimes are kind of like my personal values and ethics, but are, are super present in the culture, right? So it's not a, kind of a individualized exercise. It's really like, what is the purpose of this? What is the impact that this will have? Who is it for? Why does it matter? Does it matter? <laughs> I think starting from that place really allows for me to identify the intent behind what I'm doing, but also to identify potential partners and collaborators. So I, I very rarely start with like, this is what I want to do. And I'll, I'll start with a question, right? Which is like, why is this important? And is this important to you? And that can usually generate a really fertile ground um, for future conversations that might become something, but it might not. Sometimes you prove yourself wrong when you actually work through the value proposition. I want to talk a little bit about Black entrepreneurship, diversity, and equity within the art industry and ask, how have you seen the art industry change over the years that you've been working in the field? That's a tough one. Maybe I'll pick some low-hanging fruit first. I'm like, has it changed? I don't know. Um, (laughs) I think as someone who's really concerned with language and, you know, accessibility, I think in general, institutions, especially museums, have become more direct in their language. I see part of that as like the influence of departments beyond curatorial, right? And this is not a critique of a curatorial process, but it's to say that when education and programs and communications are at the table, I think there's a different kind of approach to language, which can be a bit more concrete and potentially educational over conceptual, say. More and more you see descriptions for individual works of art, for exhibitions, describing what type of experience someone might step into that are super direct. And they're like, this is what this is. This is what we hope, you know, you find in this experience. This is what we can't promise you. (laughs) And I think that that's really the power of the kind of lens of DEAI and how that's been placed over most functions 
of museums. And so really wanting, you know, everything to be accessible and inclusive. That's an observation that continues to surprise me because I'm so used to reading a thing and being like, what the hell? <laughs> what was that? I also think that the art world in its own way is trying to take on reparations. We hear a lot about this in terms of deaccessioning work to make more space in permanent collections um, so that those collections can then be more representative of folks that are actually making work today. It's complicated because it's like, okay, so you're going to put more women in your collection, but who are you collecting that work from? And how are you defining woman? <laughs> and, you know, I think there there's still a lot of work to be done in that space. But in general, I think the attempts are more visible. I see more public conversation about how museums can do better in terms of representation. That feels like a change that's happened in my time in the field. So yeah, those are two things that, that come to mind. Nice. What changes do you think we need to continue to see to see the art industry improve? I guess I'll say this until the cows come home, but I would love to see more artists, more community stakeholders brought into institutional conversations early on. You know, I think a lot of cultural institutions are still imagining the need of their communities, or they're still filtering it through their kind of existing agenda for what they want to produce in terms of culture. But I think a much more progressive and sustainable approach would be like, okay, well, let's have the same artists that we serve and the same communities that we serve at the table as we're deciding what we're doing and why, so that we're actually addressing an articulated need that can be fully unpacked and understood. And I keep saying it, but it, it just feels so simple, right? Like, don't assume that you know what somebody needs without asking them. <laughs> and I think there is a fear around what might be learned by inviting folks to have a seat at your table. And so, and then being accountable to doing something about what you learn. So yeah, I would love to see those types of changes take place, the kind of day-to-day, everyday practice of inclusion. Right. But yeah. that, I mean, if it's a day-to-day, everyday practice, one has to be committed. Yeah, no, that's right. And because it involves somebody directly, there's accountability. And so the second <laughs> your commitment wanes, someone's going to call you out. And so how do you deal with being called out, you know, is the other, the other piece. Right. Definitely. Yeah. In your opinion, I think this is just a continuation of the same question, but in your opinion, are the major players, the big galleries and the institutions that hold so much power, are they doing enough to facilitate change today? I'm going to group them all together, even though that's not fair and say no. <laughs> I think there are like some. As a collective. <laughs> yeah. Like as right. a field, no. So yeah, I think in general, like galleries, museums, cultural institutions are catching up and even culturally specific institutions are as well. So I, you know, I really do include everyone in this, but yeah, I think that there's this, this myth of institutional voice needing to be apolitical and that the institution could never make a statement, you know, in support of black lives. Right. But artists can. So let's put up an exhibition which deals with that content or let's hire a writer, you know, to create a, a catalog essay that explores the content. But the institution itself very rarely makes political statements. And so I think that is a problem. I think people look to institutions for all sorts of things. And I think that they really need to become leaders in that conversation and not just a platform for the voices of others. And I think this goes back to what I kind of just described is like fear, right? And so I really like break it down. I'm like, okay, well, I see why you're scared because you're worried that if you make 
this political statement than XYZ trustee or board member or grantor might have cause for concern. And that's going to like mess your whole thing up. But yeah, I think we're at a place where those types of risks need to be recalculated and just better managed because I think we're realizing that the status quo is not working and that people are expecting change. And part of why I even got involved with institutions, I've oscillated back and forth between being an independent and working within museums and other cultural institutions is the platform and the resource. Part of what I imagine would really need to happen is that resources would need to be reallocated, right? And the platforms would need, and the professional attention would need to be reallocated. And that's the power of, of institutions. And so, yeah, I think, no, they're not doing enough. They're responding to the change, but they're not driving the change. And my hope would be Mm. that we could all look to our institutions to drive the change. Mm. I love that distinction. It's so, so important. Institutions hold so much power. And when they yield it for good, they can make great change that really creates a wave and a ripple in our society. But when they don't, yeah, you know, when they don't, you think, why, well, why are you here? If your purpose, what is your purpose? What is the reason? So I I love that distinction. I want to talk a little bit about Black ownership and just ideas of how that can be a driver of change. And so what are some of your thoughts on Black ownership and entrepreneurship within the art world? I'll remove Black from my definition here. But when I think about entrepreneurship in general, I think about risk. I think about experimentation. I think about creativity. These are all things that we identify in artists, right? And so I think artists are some of the first and most natural entrepreneurs. And so when I think about the art world, I'm like, okay, how can we better learn from these amazing thinkers that we already are in community with and that we're already attempting to serve? And again, this goes back to centering artists in in the conversation and community members as well. If you look at a young person that is using their neighborhood as a platform to create the world that they want to be a part of, that's an entrepreneur. And part of me is like, how do you center those voices and whatever it is that, that you're building? I think in general, I'm a proponent for, you know, for us, by us institutions. I've almost exclusively worked in organizations that have a mission to serve contemporary Black artists, uh, especially emerging artists. And so in general, I encourage people to create the spaces that they want to be a part of if they don't exist, while also working to open up those existing spaces to to more people, right? And so in general, my thoughts on Black ownership is that like, yes, let's own (laughs) everything. But I think we also need to work on cultivating and supporting our leaders that are in these positions, oftentimes these diversity hire positions in these kind of more mainstream institutions that are not Black owned, right? And so it's like, how do we nurture their leadership where they are so that we can continue to excel and everyone is moving forward in the same direction? The last thing I think of is like not becoming gatekeepers ourselves. I think about it a lot, right? Because I think for me, it comes back to to power and access. And so when I look at the roles that, that I've inhabited in my career, I've always felt a duty to <laughs> open things up far beyond my particular individual circumstance. And part of that is like creating space for future leaders to imagine their own leadership and to have access to to leadership. There's a lot of of resources and tools aside from mentorship (laughs) for how to be a good leader, especially how to be a good leader of of color. And because there's so few, I think that competition is a really real reality for people. And so it all comes from that. And for me, it is a fear, right? It's like, how do we 
get to where we need to be, but never forget that we need to pull more people into power as well. So it's not just surviving, you know, having a seat at the table. It's also like, how do you really use the platform and have the platform expand so that others can use it as well? Right. You know, the next thing I want to ask, and I and I, it's almost like a little bit of a devil's advocate question, because I'm mm-hmm. sort of curious, like, I have an idea about this. But, you know, do you think that Black ownership and by POC ownership in general is the answer to a more equitable future in the art world? And what I'm really yeah. trying to get to is kind of like, don't at the end of the day, don't we all need to work together? We do. And I think there's just no simple answer. When I think about ownership, I think about, and I use this term provocatively, I think about real estate, right? I think about there's only so much space in the art world and in the field. And so if Black people are to own more, that needs to come from somewhere. So part of what I imagine is the change that needs to happen is that some folks in power that are not Black or are not of color need to cede some of that power to make space. And so I think we see this. I think there's a really powerful example that I witnessed, you know, with my own eyes, which was at the mass action convening back in, it was the second one. So it was maybe 2017. There was a, a white woman, a curator who was a curator of African art. And we were all kind of imagining, you know, what we could do from our position to really drive change. And she was like, as much as I would hate to do this, like I could give up this position to someone who is more qualified in their experience, but also you know, in their scholarship and their, you know, kind of academic life to take this position, right? She's like, that's something I could do. Like, I I have skills, I could find something else (laughs) to do for money and for pleasure. But like, this position should probably belong to somebody else. And the thing I can do is hand that over. And you know, like the room was completely silent. Like they couldn't even process it because it's like, you know, that's the level, <laughs> that's the level of commitment to, to opening this thing up that that has to be present for such thing as, you know, Black ownership to exist. So So yeah, it's complicated. I see a lot of people gesturing and trying and that it's going to take a lot more than a couple people for the change to be felt. I want to move on and talk about ideas of now, then, and the future. So we were on a call a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month Mm -hmm. ago now, and you talked to me a little bit about what you had on your plate. And for the podcast, Mm -hmm. I'd just like to ask a little bit of what are you working on now? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's so funny. I'm looking at like all these crazy color-coded post-its around my desk. (laughs) How do I make this make sense to anybody else? So I'll start with what I think about when I first wake up. So I'm, I'm currently writing a book, which will be published in the spring of 2021. Wow, this year, the spring of this year, by the American Alliance of Museums Press. And it's called On Museum Citizenship, a toolkit for radical art pedagogy, practice, and participation. And, you know, it's a book that I started a while ago while working at the Studio Museum. And it really began as a series of kind of case studies around some of the radical work that the museum was doing in the public sphere and in community and in partnership. But obviously, since I'm no longer there, having such a definitive case study about that particular museum didn't make sense. And so it's been exciting over the past couple of years to really expand my thinking and to open it up to a broader kind of field conversation. So it features, I think it's 10 roundtable discussions with over 40 voices from the field, you know, educators, artists, architects, all sorts of folks, really kind of riffing on like what the future of museums looks like um, and the future of practice that, you know, happens in and around museums. So that's exciting. It is it's really funny. Someone who knows me as a programmer was like, the book seems like a really <laughs> comprehensive symposium or like public program, you know, in the way that it's it's conceived. I'm excited by the community of the book and the fact that so many people agreed 
to participate in it and to have these transparent conversations about the field and their experience in it. I'm teaching at Brown University and at Hartford Art School this semester, and it's a welcomed return to teaching. I took a break for a while over the past year and a half while I was serving as the executive director of Next Haven because that institution was so new and really just trying to get it off the ground took yeah. my full attention. Like I said at the top, I learned so much from my students and from how they engage the ideas and the things that I care about and how they critique it. I think I'm a person who's always kind of looking through the lens of critique and there's things that they present that I could have never even imagined on my own. What else am I doing? I'm curating a couple of independent projects, which are all very much in their kind of nascent stages, but will likely be in some form of physical or virtual space in the spring and summer of this year. And yeah, doing a lot of consulting. I'm working in museums in this new capacity as an independent, which is super liberating. It's really fun to kind of now be outside the field, but continuing to engage museums in imagining what the future might look like for them. So some strategic planning work, some program development, some curriculum development. And the last thing I would say is, you know, I, I launched an LLC together with my husband in October called The Building Fund. And it's really concerned with building these kind of place-based initiatives that allow artists and communities and neighbors and local nonprofits to come together and really understand the kind of you know complexity and diversity of resources available to us in our neighborhoods and serve as a bridge to bring all those folks together to work on projects that you know seek to have direct impact in a kind of hyper-local sense. Mm-hmm. So those are the main pillars of my practice today. <laughs> I'm sure if you ask me in a couple of months, you know, it'll shift. Yeah. But yeah, it's an exciting time. You know, in particular, I think the art field is is really changing. And so I'm committed to observing it and to learning from what I learn. What would you say are some of the projects that you've worked on in the past that you believe led you to where you are today? Maybe, and I think mm-hmm. what I'm really trying to lead, get to is maybe perhaps a sense of tension, right? Where oh, I'm aspiring to do something like this or Mm -hmm. finding yourself in a certain role and loving it, but envisioning maybe a different version of it in your world. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That's fun. I mean, I've had so many experiences and none of them were a breeze. (laughs) So I think there's (laughs) there's always opportunity and challenge. And I've been reflecting on this a lot recently because I'm part of this new cohort called Readying the museum, which is a couple different museum professionals that have all come together, brought together by Xaveria Simmons, who's a really awesome artist, and Nikki Garcia out of the Arizona State Art Museum. And they asked me the same thing. And the experience that came to mind that actually was like super emotional as I was recalling it was participating in 2012. I was a participant in Tino Segal's These Associations at the Mm. Tate in London. And it was fun because I, by participant, I don't mean that I help plan it or coordinate it or any of the kind of typical roles that I've inhabited since. I, I was literally a citizen of London, running around the Tate, engaging strangers <laughs> in conversations that were super intimate in nature and that were honest. It was a way of kind of softening that turbine hall, which is like, you know, one of the most kind of... <laughs> brutal museum entrances I think I've ever seen. So if you're already terrified of museums and you walk in the turbine hall, you're like, should I just turn around? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Like if I fall, I'm going to break every bone in my body. 
It was an interesting challenge. It was probably the moment at which I decided that I was most interested in what citizenship, you know, within and of museums looks like and how folks engage not just art and exhibitions and content, but each other, you know, in a space that's designed to be about both education, but also self-discovery, right? And so, yeah, I learned a lot about myself in that project. I learned a lot about the fellow participants and the difficulty of, you know, being transparent and vulnerable and intimate with strangers in a museum setting. <laughs> and it was durational, you know, so I did that every single day, eight hours a day for four months. And when I say running through the museum, we were physically sprinting like at top speed up and down the turbine hall. It was mentally challenging. It was physically challenging. It prepared me for basically everything that came next in terms of how I would choose to engage communities through the museum space. Yeah, I learned a lot from that kind of secondary experience that really flowed from that was deciding to move back to the States, landing back at the Studio Museum. So I've worked at the Studio Museum three different times, three different <laughs> capacities. And yeah, really being excited to come back with that experience kind of very fresh in my mind to help the museum on its 50th anniversary really think through what its local citizenship in Harlem would look like. So helping to develop the Harlem Initiative, which is really centered around kind of partnerships with local parks and libraries, uh, but also thinking through how you reimagine museum practices outside the space of a museum, right? So what does curating look like in the public realm? And how does, you know, a museum consider public art for the first time? And so all of that, you know, really for me kind of has roots in that experience at the Tate, but really got to kind of flourish in those five years that I was the director of programs and community engagement at the Studio Museum. Beautiful. I love that. As you were describing that, I was thinking about taking, you know, the class outside of the classroom. I went to a school called Museum School for high school in New York City. And it was in the in this period in New York where there were a lot of magnet schools and sort of like charter schools that were doing an alternative curriculum. And so for us, we would spend most of our time every, every week in a museum. Mm -hmm. So if the subject we were focusing on was Asian art or, you know, the natural world and, and science, we would either be at the Natural History Museum or we would be at the Met. Right. And we would spend three to four days out of our five-day school week in a museum. And it completely shifted the way that you were able to learn, right? It's, yeah. It just changes your perspective. And then I also started thinking about some of the public art that I have seen in Harlem late last year that it was part of the studio museum. And and I would just stand in front of photographs and and learn something, right? I was learning about Harlem. I was learning about this area that I had lived in. I lived in Harlem for like 12 years, but things that I had never known about this neighborhood. So I just love that you shared that because it's such an important point that, you know, when you shift your vantage point, when you shift your perspective, so many new things can open up and change. And it's just really, really beautiful. It's true. And I think there's ways that you can figure that out on your own. But for me, it's like how that happens in community and how that happens in front of art is just so compelling. And so, yeah, I'm just, you know, I'm super excited by, especially the work of my colleague, Shanta Lawson, still at the Studio Museum, on ways that their education team is really trying to understand and play with and reimagine the function of art in everyday life. Like I just find it so important. And I think in this conversation on, you know, are museums relevant? <laughs> How sustainable are they? 
yeah. it's like museum's ability to answer that question of like how they actually support and fit into, you know, someone's everyday life is just so, so crucial. Absolutely. Yeah. As we round out the episode, I want to ask you a final question. What are you most excited about when you consider the future? Well, <laughs> I have a huge smile on my face. I'm excited about the future. I'm looking forward to disruption. You know, I think something is going to happen that's going to change everything. And I don't know what it is, but I think it'll be largely positive. Yeah, and I'm here for it. You know, I think it's messy. And like I said, like, I, I like to get my hands dirty. I think most people in the art world don't. I'm excited for whatever shift in like center, you know, like the new voices that are going to become part of the center of the field, the new practices that are going to become standardized and accepted and adopted as mainstream. You know, I'm really excited by that. And again, like I think artists are going to be part of driving that conversation. And I think the more communities understand their rights to cultural institutions, I think the more they will be able to advocate for those institutions to change, to become exactly what we all want and need them to become. And so, yeah, I'm excited. There seems to be some form of energy and movement that, you know, is really swelling. And so just riding that, you know, until wherever it takes us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, this has been such a good episode. I, I can't wait to share it. Thank you so oh, thank much. Thank you. Thank you. No, this is really fun. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Same here. Just to share space and time with you has been really lovely. Thank you. Well, good luck with everything. And, you know, I've been tuning in. You have many of my friends in your in your archive. So I, oh, I appreciate good. what you're doing. Yeah. I'd love to hear that. Yeah, I think season two is also just going to be more fun, more good vibes, good conversations. So thank you. That was our episode with Nico Whedon, the art advisor, curator, educator, and writer whose work is deeply rooted in her love for people and community. I want to give a big shout out and a thank you to Nico for sharing her insights, ideas, and the central theme she explores in her work as a practitioner of the arts. And it's a wrap, folks. That's our episode of Lightwork Presents Everything is Connected. Conversations on culture and current events with some of today's hottest creative contemporaries. These episodes were recorded in between New York and Miami over the past six months and reflect the times we are living in while also adding some commentary to the social, cultural, and political issues of the past year. I'm your host, Folashade Ologundudu, and we'll see you next time. As always, stay motivated, stay inspired, and stay up. Peace and love, y'all. We out.